Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Robbie, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Hi, I'm Ravi Samaya. I'm a uh, writer. I was a, I'm a former correspondent for the uh, New York Times, and uh, I'm here to talk about my book, The uh, Golden Thread, about the mysterious death of the UN Secretary General, Dag Hammarskjöld, in 1961, uh, just outside the Congo. Now, you wrote about his death, but I'm curious, how did you even come across his name? It was something I came across through the podcast. I'd never, ever heard of it at all through any history classes or anything. And I think we were talking a little bit off air, like the New York... Uh, in New York, they have a little plaza named after him, but there's not a whole lot of explanation in history of who this character was or what he was doing. No, I was working nights at the New York Times, actually, which sounds really exciting because you're in the middle of the most exciting city in the world and like things happen constantly, except they don't. So you're mostly just sat there watching a police scanner. Nothing much is going on. Uh, you're incredibly bored, but you can't switch off. And so I had access to the New York Times archives and I just started reading stuff. I just started digging through and I started out by reading like, you know, writers I admired who'd worked for the Times, like Gaitalees or Tom Wolfe or, you know, I think I looked up some Hemingway stuff too. And then you kind of just fall down various rabbit holes of, of old news stories. And I think I came across it in uh, in an old newspaper of some kind. Maybe it was... You know, if you look up in the New York Times archive, you get like a front page and the story you're looking for is highlighted. But there's a whole bunch of other stories around it. It's an image in the of, of, the, of the paper. And so you end up just reading a bunch of old newspapers and I kind of came across it that way. And I started digging into it and it just seemed like a really crazy story. You know, I had everything. It had every every facet of a of a thriller, every facet of a of a murder mystery, every facet of a, you know, a geopolitical scandal. Uh, and so I just became kind of hooked. Could you take me into, I guess, his death? I know a little bit about it from when I was explained to it briefly. I, his plane went down um, and there was some odd things about it. And I, I've seen some names that get mentioned in certain articles about investigations into his death, like Hoover. And I already have kind of, I wouldn't say a tough time with those characters. It's just if you know about COINTELPRO and you know about a lot of other stuff, you kind of look into it like, you know what? I mean, suspicions about his death, sure. Uh, I'm just curious where you focused and if you could take me through a little bit of his death as well, too. Yeah, so we have to start, I think, with um, <clears throat> with the conflict in the Congo in, uh, in 1960 and 61. Uh, basically, Belgian colonial rule ended in the Congo. Uh, and it had been a pretty brutal uh, kind of colonial regime. And, you know, in my opinion, if you have a brutal regime, it's going to end brutally. It's very hard for all that kind of hatred and, and anger to just sort of uh, drop away seamlessly. Uh, and so the country kind of split. It kind of divided. First, it was uh, the colonialists who were in fear of their newly freed former colonial charges. Uh, and then there was a, a section of the Congo called Katanga in the far south. Um, which was responsible for nearly all the mineral wealth of the country, the copper, the uranium, you know, all the great minerals, uh, a lot of the most important minerals for the Congolese economy came from this region. Uh, and a Belgian mining company called uh, Union Miniere had had kind of exclusive sweetheart deals to pull these minerals out of the ground, uh, signed with the Belgian government, and they just didn't want to let them go. So they sort of helped persuade Katanga to secede and become its own nation, uh, under a, a leader called Moise Shambe. And uh, it kind of started a civil war inside the Congo. And, you know, at that moment, the UN was kind of ascendant. Now we kind of think of it as, it's not kind of an, it's not exactly an afterthought, but it's like not everyone's first port of call when something happens in the world. Uh, but at that time, we were just post-World War II. We were, you know, 15, 20 years after World War II. And uh, people looked to the UN and Hammerfeld for a solution. Um, and he did a wonderful thing, which is to apply a principle, which is to say, well, the Congolese deserve to rule themselves. However crazy that looks to us, you know, it's their country. They have to do what they want. But this managed to upset, of course, the mining companies, but also uh, the British government, which was very worried about uh, the Congolese leader, Patrice Lumumba, and his connections with the Soviets. It upset the CIA. It upset the American government to some extent. Uh, and it upset a bunch of uh, sort of far-right mercenaries who saw the end of colonialism as, as a huge threat. They felt like, well, white rule in Africa is over and, and our way of life is over. And uh, and they were pretty upset. So just by doing what we would consider to be, you know, the right thing, he managed to uh, to piss off a lot of people. 
well, it's even Alan Dulles had a gold mine, I think, in was I guess one of his companies in Indonesia. Um, and he's kind of so. Do you think it was a Belgium thing? Do you think it was? I, I mean, I I don't know when this article is. So, like I said, I'm very kind of new to the subject. But and the UN recently talked about that they were looking into the death of Dag Hammarskjöld, and they were talking about it because with Alan Dulles and the Patrice Lumumba situation, they just didn't throw it out that it could be possible that Dag Hammarskjöld's death could have been either Alan Dulles or it could have been some type of situation where there could have been some faulty play, and. It sounds crazy, like if you don't look into the history, you know about regime change and a bunch of other things that start going on. But I mean, what he was doing would have done more than just, you know, brought peace and let these people be free in some areas. It was going to mess up a lot of business deals. And if you look at how the country was going, you know, the Rockefellers and all those types of fellows, it's not a you, you got a target on your back at that point. Yeah, I mean, so his actual death, what was happening was he was flying to Katanga to broker a, a peace which would have reunited the Congo. And then, of course, all those mining companies uh, are under the rule of the Congolese government, who had you know, outlined a plan to understandably take those profits back themselves. Uh, and it was also seen as, you know, like a foothold for the Soviets uh, in Africa. And so he was flying to broker this peace uh, and his plane was about to come into land uh, and it crashed. And there is a lot of evidence that there were other planes in the sky, maybe hostile to his plane. Uh, there are lots of irregularities in uh, the way they began the search for the plane. It doesn't look like Hamakol died instantly. It seemed like, you know, there was a moment where he could have been rescued. Uh, but a search party didn't go out until the next morning. The tower logs are missing from the airport that night. Uh, and the more government documents we uncover, the more you understand that not everyone was unambiguously rooting for him to succeed that night, and the more you understand that some people were extremely uh, angry with him. Uh, and I kind of agree with you. Like, I'm I'm not a believer in conspiracy theories, really. I think people are generally too, they're firstly too bad at keeping secrets, and secondly, too incompetent to run a big conspiracy. But, like, this stuff did go on at that time. You know, they did try and kill Lumumba. Like, they there is a non-zero chance that the British government, more likely, and to some extent, the American government might have been involved in the death of an actual leader of an actual nation around that time. So it's not totally crazy to consider that there might have been some elements of uh, of espionage or, you know, kind of, uh, it's easier to kill this one guy than it is to solve this whole problem <laughs> kind of thinking. So you, you mentioned like there's other planes in the sky. Do you think that his plane could have possibly shot down? Kind of what I heard was that the plane could have been messed with because it was sitting on the airport runway for a couple of hours before his flight. Yeah, there are there are a few plausible theses. One is that it was just an accident. You know, shit happens. Uh, another one is that it was sabotaged kind of before it took off. Someone planted explosives on it. Uh, another one is that it was, you know, some kind of attack from the ground, like a, a, a gun shooting or, a, I guess, a, some kind of other projectile. Uh, another one is it could have been shot down by, by planes. Uh, and <clears throat> over time, there has come to be more and more evidence there were other planes in the sky. There was like all this, there was all this talk that the, the Katangese, uh, the Air Force of Katanga, uh, didn't have the planes that would have been able to keep up with Hammerfeld's plane and would have had the kind of weapons necessary to take it down. And that's been proven to be false. Uh, we know the Rhodesian Air Force was parked, you know, very, very close by and was very hostile to Hammerfeld, you know, sort of northern Rhodesia, uh, which, of course, was kind of a British colony. It's now Zimbabwe. Um, and it was kind of seen as the last bastion of, of white rule in Africa, and they were not happy about what was happening in the Congo, both for mining reasons and for kind of political and traditional reasons. And so there's more and more evidence there were other planes in the sky. Was his trip public? Like, did he have to talk to a couple of people about it? Was it like kind of kept on the down low? I'm sure people in the military obviously knew about it. Maybe some of the people that were in the country he was headed towards. But I'm just curious if it was public newspapers and all these types of things. Because then I would just say, well, then mercenaries and all this type of stuff would probably know about it if the information or the word got out. You know, I, I mean, where do you lean? Do you lean that it might be some type of inside government thing, whether it's our government or a foreign government? I mean, it, it's a crazy thing because if you're going to plant explosives on it, you could just have it blow up in the middle of the sky. It doesn't make sense to have it like right before when he's about to land. I would think it would be a landing gear situation. 
Yeah, I mean, so there's weirdly evidence for all of these things. Like I, when I go into the story, <laughs> I try and keep a, an open mind because, you know, life is weird and crazy stuff happens and usually crazy stuff doesn't happen. Usually it's boring. But, you know, you can never tell. You can't. We all saw the movie thing. with Tom Hanks when the birds went into the plane engine. I can get I can get with yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. You know, weird things happen. What can you do? You know, it, it was a terrifying thing actually writing this book because you know, I don't like to prejudge. Like, I don't know what happened. I'm, I'm writing the book to try and figure it out. But you're under pressure to come up with some kind of solution. And you always worry there's going to be nothing. But honestly, the problem was there was too much evidence for too many outcomes. People had confessed. There are all these mysterious documents from South Africa, from this mysterious mercenary group, which does seem to have exist and does seem to have done some weird stuff uh, in South Africa and in, around, through Africa around that time, uh, where they sort of confessed to planting explosives on it. But, you know, those documents, they're at issue. No one quite knows whether they're true or not. Um, there is an enormous amount of evidence that there were other planes in the sky, perhaps hostile. Uh, there was uh, a couple of people working for the National Security Agency who, you know, swore until their death that they had overheard chatter that night, which implied a conversation between two planes, Hamakog's plane and a hostile plane in the sky. That's never been explained. <clears throat> Uh, nothing has been released by the NSA which would confirm or deny that. There was a Belgian pilot who came forward uh, to kind of confess his role in, in, in flying a plane that night. And he sort of implied that it was sort of hostile, but it was sort of an accident. So, you know, I don't know. And there is some evidence that, you know, it's hard to land a plane in Africa at night, especially in 1961. The technology was nowhere near as robust as it, as it is now. You know, the pilots, you know, were under all sorts of strain. Um, and so well, even there's too the, much evidence is the issue. Where where the evidence, I would say, the issue would become with the search party. I mean, if you said there was problems with the search party, what types of situations or maybe things that weren't thorough or done properly, like that normally would have happened during a search party when so there was, the crash? There were several witnesses to basically the moment of the crash. Some of them were what, what were known as charcoal burners. They were like locals who would cut down trees and, and, you know, burn the charcoal, burn the wood slowly to make charcoal, which they would then sell by the side of the road. And so they were in the woods or around the woods, you know, through the night to keep tending to their burning charcoal. And several of those people saw it go down and, and tried to report it and were sort of fobbed off. Uh, there were local... Uh, I think Northern Rhodesian police officers who also saw something happen and tried to report it and were kind of fobbed off. Uh, and basically the plane went down around midnight. We're not exactly sure of the time. Uh, and the search party didn't start till the next morning, 9, 9, 10 a.m. That's, you know, an incredibly long period of time after a plane crash has occurred to uh, to leave it sitting there. I wonder why they fobbed it off like that. Like, I mean, did they not believe the people that were reporting it in? But if there was a police officer as well, too, that was reporting it in, it just I mean, laziness, maybe. I mean, look, I hate to call police lazy, but there's situations where obviously I don't want to get out of my car when it's, you know, snowing and raining out just because someone pulls you over. So, you know, that's a, a real thing. You just let somebody pass. I don't know. Could it be something like that? I'm trying to find an explanation of like not the super conspiracy rabbit hole there. I couldn't tell you. I mean, I can tell you certainly they felt they were under, they didn't like chemical and they felt like they were under a pressure to do the, the correct thing, you know, to wait for their boss or get the right permission or whatever. That's one explanation. The other explanation is they were frantically covering up for whatever had occurred uh, and making sure they'd lost not only the tower tapes from that night, but also the logs uh, in an air traffic control tower at that time in that place. They would not only keep tape recordings, but they would keep a backup log of what was on the tape recordings, just in case the tape recordings went missing. Both those things are gone. You even, know, they're just not there. We don't do, know where they are. Doesn't the plane have a black box too? Uh, I'm not, I don't think it was found in, in that sense. Like they had another thing aboard, which was a, uh, like a, an encryption device, which sent encrypted messages. Um, and that has subsequently been discovered to have been compromised by Western governments. They were sort of secretly behind the encryption company. So they were obviously reading all the, the various messages that were going back and forth. My strong feeling is that, like, I'll give you an example. The Swedish government for a long time did not reveal all the secrets it has about this thing 
because some of its soldiers were cannibalized during this uh, conflict, but they lied to the families and didn't tell them that they were cannibalized. And they felt like it would be too embarrassing now to reveal all the documents of these, for these families to understand that their, their distant relatives, I like guess, at, at this point were were cannibalized and they also felt it was racist to reveal that they were cannibalized. Uh, and my strong feeling is that in either British, American, South African or Belgian archives, there's much more telling information than we're receiving, but they're kind of sitting on it out of a sense of embarrassment for something silly. I don't know what, but something silly. Yeah, I mean, it's I'm, I'm interested in the Kennedy assassination. I've been focusing that for like a year, talking to as many experts as I possibly can. A lot of stuff can be chalked up to agency credibility in the way that they're viewing things. Like a simple release of a document or what's kept secret. You're like, why does why were they hiding wiretapping people? It doesn't we know about that in past events, but it's just how they see it. They're like, eh, it's looks us look really, really bad. So that's an issue. I mean, there's how many archives? Obviously, there's plenty of people out there that have documents on this stuff. I mean, how many documents are still left to be released? I mean, it's an impossible thing to say. I mean, I, there's like a list of documents that I and any other researcher in this field would just love to see. Like, if there was any fragment of tower logs or, or tower recordings, you know, if there were NSA records pointed in that direction from that, like there was a uh, uh, sort of a surveillance plane, an American surveillance plane in the sky that night. Like, it must have picked up. It was there to pick up stuff. Like, what was it doing? Where are those records? You know, and the South African government, uh, they sorry, the road, the Northern Rhodesian documents from that night have been the most productive. They've shown us the most stuff that we haven't seen before. Uh, but of course, Northern Rhodesia doesn't exist as a nation anymore, and its Air Force documents were either destroyed or donated to a university in South Africa where they've gone missing. So I'd love to see those documents. Uh, the Belgian government, of course, was was deeply involved as as the decolonialization process went along, and I'm pretty sure there's a document or two lying around in uh, in those archives. So, there's definitely you know, a document and, lying in someone's garage somewhere. That's where you find the most stuff. I've heard about like Stephen Kinzer's book on Poisoner in Chief on MK Ultra and all that, and he was like, "Yeah, I found all these MK Ultra documents in some dude's garage." I was like, "Dude, man, well, if that talk dude about is yard listening, sale. if that dude is listening, I want to look in your garage. Like, let's let's figure this out." I mean, it does happen that way to some extent. A lot of my documents came from uh, a lot of the, the like really basic blocking and tackling of this case, like where the plane was, what was going on, was figured out by like kind of a hobbyist Swedish uh, aviation, at least a pilot and sort of aviation expert called uh, Virving, who just, you know, kept it all in the box in his living room and his son scanned it and sent it over. So it does work that way. You know, but when they there was a one, there was a guy who was like the air traffic controller of the um, the tower that night, and um, you know, one of the investigators reached out to him and said, uh, "Do you have these logs? Do you recall what happened? Even if you don't have these logs." Uh, and the British government reached out to that guy and told him not to talk to this Swedish investigator. You know, it makes you think that stuff. I don't know. I can't. Maybe it's just a an excess of security, an excess of ass covering, but you know, you wonder. <laughs> Who else would have access to the tower logs? Uh, I mean, it would be the Northern Rhodesian government. It would be the Katangese government, probably the British government, because they were deeply involved. There were, you know, at least well, there were a number of spies just afoot that night involved in everything that was going on. We know this because one of them accidentally attached a part of his report to a non-classified document. So when the sort of main researcher on this topic is a, uh, an academic called Susan Williams, um, when she was looking through the archives, she found it just paperclip to the back of a, a, a non-confidential document. So we know there were spies around, they must know something, you know, their notes or, or filings or reports have never been released, you know. There was talk recently that Russia was going to help out, that Russia had a bunch of documents. Like, you have to be a bit careful with Russia because they have an ulterior motive and they've certainly put out false information on this topic before to try and impugn the CIA. They did so in the 60s and 70s. Um, but that's one direction of, of search. Uh, there's a bunch of documents in a university in Scotland that one of the doctors left there that have been proven very useful at uh, autopsy reports. So, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of leads, and that's uh, you referred to the UN investigation earlier. That's what they're looking into now. 
Now you mentioned autopsy reports. Is there something different about his autopsy versus just normal? I mean, was he, he wasn't burned or anything. I mean, there were conflicting reports about uh, the condition of his body. One set of information says he was basically untouched. Another said there was a hole in his forehead. You know, that's a pretty big difference. And so... Uh, gunshot. <laughs> gunshot. Yeah, exactly. So the autopsy reports basically reveal it wasn't a gunshot. And that's, you know, eliminating a potential cause is, is a big step forward. Did they find him in his plane or did he try and escape? Did he manage to make it back farther than the, I don't know where he was sitting in the plane? He was uh, outside of the plane. He was leaned up, kind of sat up against a, uh, a termite mound that was nearby that the plane had in fact crashed into. And so basically everyone else except for one soldier who uh, survived for a day or so called Harold Julien died either in the crash or immediately afterwards. It looks like Hammerfeld had, had managed to pull himself away from the crash, although he was pretty badly injured. Uh, there was like his hand had gripped some grass that was growing there. It wasn't on the grass. The grass was in his hand. So he must have been alive at least to do that, you know. So that's basically what we can tell. Now, the after reports, when people are making statements, either our government or other governments, I mean, did anybody try and poke a little bit into it about like there was something suspicious here did anybody make it i know i think hoover is the one that said the altimeters in the plane were fine which is i mean i don't really trust anything the guy says but you know sure i mean if, obviously but you know i don't know it's a government i mean I, I hate to say it like that and get conspiratorial with it but when you start looking about what they can do to people in other countries i mean you don't put it above them if you look at someone that might be messing with their financial interests no i mean it's really hard to say basically they have to uh uh, work backwards from the crispy altimeters they have in front of them that have burned in a fire you know like it's hard it's hard to say anything for sure when you're dealing with wreckage uh yeah it's there was an immediate investigation sort of from the northern rhodesian government with the british government uh and partly with the un but in Britain, the purpose of any public inquiry is to brush it under the rug. And that it seemed very much like that's what they wanted to do in this in this inquiry. Like there was uh, very good evidence unearthed by that inquiry that other people have used since. Like they were quite thorough in their kind of cataloging and laying out of the wreckage. Like a lot of the evidence they gathered is, you know, it's pretty reliable evidence. But their interpretation was, that's ah, fine. Don't worry about it. And that's an interpretation. And now, is there a research community that's behind, like, looking into the death of Dag Hammarskjöld? I mean, why, why did the UN just say that they're going to investigate it more? I mean, if it's been all this time. There is a, um, a research community. It was kind of started by this woman, Susan Williams, Williams who's a writer and an academic in London. Um, and she put out a book a few years ago. Uh, and then, of course, I'm digging into it. There's a, a French author who's been digging into it. Uh, but, you know, I think the UN, you have to look at it in context, that investigation started in 2013, I believe, and uh, that was a time where the world was not as savage seeming as it is now, maybe, and it felt like we had the time and energy to look into to old mysteries, and, and of course, Hammerfeld is still a very revered figure at the UN, you know, you could talk to a lot of diplomats and a lot of people who work with or adjacent to the UN who say, they wish they had the kind of leadership that, that he had showed at this moment. So he's kind of a revered figure. Now, when you file like for Freedom of Information Act requests, now, is, is it uh, how long is it? I always hear that it's horrible length for a lot of people, four or five years to get documents back. I'm just wondering if there's I mean, I, there's probably a bunch of people that are requesting for documents. But I'm wondering if you have a quicker pace at getting documents back than maybe some of the stories I hear about the Kennedy assassination. No, I mean, it just depends. It's like. Sometimes you put in a request, you get a thing straight away. Sometimes you're going to have to hire a lawyer. You know, it just depends on the document, depends on the moment, depends on, it depends on a lot of things. It's, it's very difficult to say. Biden has, as you probably know, uh, released tens of thousands, I guess now, uh, of contemporaneous documents, some of which are like adjacent. They're actually focused on the Kennedy assassination, I think. Yeah. But uh, some of them are, because it's the same time period and the same spy agency, um, also adjacent to the Hammerfeld story, two of my favorite, one of my favorite characters in, in the book is uh, 
is also linked, I guess, in, in various theories with the Kennedy assassination, which is this uh, guy, QI Wynn. Have you seen that guy? Mm-mm. He's got a code name. He was like a Georgian bank robber, like a stateless Georgian bank robber who was uh, rescued by the CIA and tasked to go work in Africa and given plastic surgery and trained in, you know, Wait, explosives and, and all this kind of stuff. And uh, there were some really fun documents connected with him that came out in those uh, those big Biden uh, administration releases uh, in recent recent months, I guess. Yeah, because uh, a lot of my friends are the ones that are in charge of that lawsuit against Biden to get those documents released. And there's think 3,000 or 4,000, something like that. A lot of them like JM Wave stuff, which I figured it was going to be a lot of like Latin America type situations and programs that were going on that couldn't be released. I don't know why they're getting labeled Kennedy documents or national security or it's been 60 years almost. I think you can release some of those documents. But what you just mentioned about cosmetic surgery, that I've never heard of that in my entire life. I've only seen that in movies. That's real that they give a guy cosmetic surgery to make him look different. Is it like witness protection type stuff? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's what it, I, I only have the documents. Like, I have not seen the guy. I can't tell you uh, what <clears throat> to what extent he had surgery or, or what that meant, whether it was like, you know, a nose job or whether it was like, you know, a haircut. I can't say. But that's what the documents say. The documents say he was supplied with uh, cosmetic surgery and, uh, and, and various other nefarious <laughs> training now, when we for talk his about- mission in Africa. When we talk about too much evidence, do you think it's that means it's a thorough investigation, or do you think that it's kind of suspicious that there is so much evidence? Like, there's a lot of situations like that in some projects that we ended up finding out later, like Operation Mockingbird and other things that we are well publicly known. But there's a lot of evidence, like way too much, where now there's so many different theories. And it's kind of like with Dag Hammarskjöld theories about how his plane went down and different ideas. I mean, all of them are, can be supported. But that also should bring up suspicion. It's not it, usually there's not just one clear cut answer. There's a bunch of different answers, which kind of leaves it up to was the investigation right, or is there too much evidence where you're really not trying to implement any country? Because you have to look at it from a government standpoint. If you're looking at it from a government standpoint, you don't want to implicate certain issues like whether it's a communist threat or whether it's any of this, because then people are immediately going to want justice and they want you to go to war about something. And it's like, no, we can't do that. It could be World War Three. It could be whatever. Yeah, I mean, I apply Occam's razor, which is, uh, you know, the simplest explanation is usually the truth. And you'd have to be a genius of of decades long uh, information campaigns to put out such a, a breadth and kind of variety of, of other theories. I mean, I just think that there was there's a various points been very, <coughs> excuse me, very high interest in this case. And that means there's a flurry of stuff released. Uh, and just over the years, that's mounted up, so you could take it in nearly any direction. What it comes down to is we're trying to find great detail on like nine or ten minutes uh, on one particular night over a pretty, you know, sparsely occupied section of Africa, and that's a hard mission. Doesn't really matter if there's a lot of spy agencies around. Doesn't matter if it's like that zone at that moment was the you know, focus a lot of, of a lot of geopolitical energy. It's just a hard task. So to me, that's where the complexity comes in. This might sound like a dumb question, but did you find anything that kind of shook your core a little bit? Like maybe, I mean, I, le- I read the church committee report and let me tell you, once you read that, I'm surprised that more people don't go to that as like a basis of like, this is what your government can really do. And I'm not anti-government at all, but CIA on campus to me is shocking because all the institutions that they listed off there, I was like, oh my God, I knew so many people that went to these schools. And it's just, to me, that just set the kind of the bar for me. It shook me a little bit. It doesn't have to be something so conspiratorial, but it can just be something that you might've learned that might've got you. Yeah. That church commission report is absolutely fascinating. And you know, I'm, I'm going to get a poster (laughs) of it right here. (laughs) fantastic it was a a really particular moment in history i think that moment so i don't know how far we can extrapolate although i guess you know you can you can draw lines from that to uh iraq and stuff but um uh there was one document which i found right at the end which actually the un found which i got hold of right at the end of my researches which was uh the northern rhodesian documents which kind of end my book which is you know, people 
nearly overtly talking about a cover-up, nearly overtly talking about we have to shield the people responsible. Like, that was pretty sh shaking. I'd like to see more of those documents. I'd like to find out who these people who wrote these things are, but so far it's been a dead end. Do you think that it could be when it comes to covering up for maybe another government or some other person, maybe they know the answer, but do you think it's just because of like national security or maybe a threat type thing where it comes in like people are going to want you to get justice for whatever that is? I mean, it's been all this time and people still want justice on the Kennedy assassination. I think that's like that with every really political death that's still kind of a conspiracy um, or documents that are still kept hold as people start to question their government a little bit more and just kind of want answers. And like I said, it can be anything to protecting the agency's credibility or not trying to go into a war with anything like that. But that's not what the people want. They kind of just want to know the true facts of the matter. No, I always say the most basic form of justice is to have your story honestly told. Like that's the most basic form of justice. That's a lot of what a, a trial is. It's just having your story honestly told. And I think there's a really like profound and basic human desire for that to happen. Like I certainly have it. Like if I hear about something, you're just like, well, what happened? Like I don't I understand what everyone's interests are, but like what actually occurred here is a question that I really wanna wanna have answered. And and that's sort of why I wrote the book, because he seemed like a guy who deserved to have his story honestly told, not skewed in one direction or another, or used expediently, as you say, to stave off a conflict or prevent embarrassment. But like, what happened? <laughs> I think he would want that. Now, through your research, did you look through any of government's past events, whether it's our government or if it's a foreign government, just to see if there's any other well-known or historically documented stuff when it came to past government events that could be a little bit suspicious? Yeah, I mean, in this case, it was the death of Lumumba, which I don't know if you know much about that, but I'm sure you do because you read the Church Commission documents. But like, they were going to kill. So Patrice Lumumba was uh, the first democratically elected leader of the Congo, and he was a uh, very fiery, charismatic, uh, somewhat chaotic leader. Uh, and he had asked uh, America and Britain for financial aid, and they were hemming and hawing about it. So he said, OK, I'm going to go to the Soviets. And the Soviets gave him various bits of financial aid, which, you know, made him public enemy number one for the British and American governments. And, you know, one of the spies who was in, in Congo at the time, she was said to be sick and on medication, but she said, we killed Lumumba, you know, and the Belgian government has admitted its role in killing Lumumba uh, via various proxies who were on the ground. And the British and the Belgian governments were in quite close contact and the CIA and, and uh, the Secret Intelligence Service, the British Intelligence Agency, they were in contact. So it's really not crazy to think. I mean, if you look at the American government documents, like they had their own plan to kill the member if someone else didn't kill the member. They have the you know, they 13 were gonna members listed off on the assassination to Castro plots. Um, at the bottom of it, there's Sidney Gottlieb, who's head of MK Ultra, and his name is attached to two names. And one was, I'm forgetting the first one, but the second one, it said Slash, and it said Lumumba right beside it. And each one of these 13 members, and a lot of them were mafia figures as well, too. But they had their name, they had at least two people or three that they were assigned for for plots to kill foreign leaders. Yeah, I mean, it, Gottlieb went even further. He showed up in, in the Congo with a tube of poison toothpaste, you know? Like that, that's what happened. That's documented. That's in the, I believe Get us in the to our love of dental hygiene. How dare they? <laughs> well, and I mean, the problem is that, that, I mean, candidly, spies lie. They just lie. <laughs> and so uh, Larry Devlin, who was head of the CIA station in Leopoldville at the time, he says he just discarded this stuff. But who knows, you know? Maybe he discarded it because he had a better plot. Maybe he got into cahoots with... SIS and, and the Belgians and thought, okay, we'll whack this guy in a way where it's much more deniable than, than him getting polio from his toothpaste. You know, I, I, it's impossible to say. They lie. I put a lot more weight into Dag Hammarskjöld's death and Hale Boggs' death. After learning about Dag Hammarskjöld and kind of reading through the church committee report, I mean, I even the Hale Boggs situation, there's a very eerie video you can watch. It's from 71 on AP Archive on YouTube. And it's Hale Boggs just calling out Hoover 
and saying Hoover needs to retire because he's wiretapping congressmen. He's doing and he like tears Hoover a new one, basically. And this guy reporter says, what's your evidence on that? It sounds like a conspiracy. And he says, what you're asking is for the FBI to investigate the FBI. And I was like, at that moment, it clicked in my head, like, oh, my God. And then his plane went down, I think, four or five months later in 72. And there was no remains found of the plane. Uh, so, I mean, I'd never thought that was suspicious, but then after learning about Dag Hammarskjöld a little bit and kind of some suspicious stuff that went on in there, and then also learning about just foreign assassination plots in general, I'm like, I really don't put that above them. Not saying it has to be like this guy needs to die now. It's just a situation where it's like there is so much to risk, whether it's whatever. And obviously, if you look at, you know, Tama Boyle and other situations that went on in Africa, for instance, I mean, the government wasn't very willing to help out in certain situations when other people were trying to be independent and claim their own aid as well, too. No, and one of the most fascinating little fragments in the book is Harry Truman, who's, I just, he's not a conspiracist. <laughs> like, you can say a lot of stuff about Harry Truman, but, you know, he's one of my favorite presidents, and he seems like a pretty trustworthy fellow. Uh, and, you know, the day after Hammerfeld died, he was giving a press conference about something else, and he sort of pushed the reporters to ask him about Hammerfeld. And when they did, he said he was on the point of getting something done when they killed him. Notice I said, when they killed him. And then he wouldn't say anything else. But he was a confidant of Kennedy. Like, he was going to the White House. He was still pretty involved. You know, he was... He certainly... People told him things. And he's not a guy who I consider to be, you know, flighty or casual with his words. And, you know, it just makes you think. I think he probably did that on purpose because he knew he couldn't go into it but he'd leave a statement like that where people go what, what does he mean by that i mean it's it's so difficult you work for the government it's hard to say something like you know crazy like that but i mean what do you, what do you think i mean do you honestly think that they they got him though like when we talk about foreign people to mercenaries i know you don't want to say in like the whole smoking gun situation but in my opinion i think i think you that's i, I deliberately wrote it to present what i consider to be the most and the most relevant information that I can and people can draw their own conclusions so I, I respect your conclusion but having gone through it the way that I've gone through it it's hard for me to draw an easy conclusion I guess I go through phases I'll pick up one document and I'll read it and I'll think wow this is just ridiculous of course of course there was some nonsense happened you know my, my theory is that it's never just one thing so when something goes wrong to the extent that that went wrong, it's not usually not just like one action. So maybe it was like the planes were in the sky trying to reach his plane, trying to get it to land somewhere else. It went wrong. He died. They covered it up. You know, it's like it's not going to be, I think, single faceted. It's not going to be as straightforward as they got him or they didn't get him. It's going to be they tried to do X and Y happened and then they did Z. And it's like that, you know. Do you think that the truth will ever come out? Like if the UN finds an answer and kind of says it out there, do you think it's going to be one of those situations you think we'll never get truth on it? I, I question these more because I always look at like a house of cards. Like I'm tackling the biggest one, which is the Kennedy one, um, just because I think there's a lot of things, whether you want to say government error or just some issues that went on in the case, whether you believe Lee Harvey Oswald did it or not. I just kind of stay out of those arguments. I just look at the evidence and say this was altered. This was scratched out. This wasn't picked up. This wasn't done right. But if you look at it from like a House of Cards standpoint, I mean, we're questioning foreign assassination plots, which the public can more on the lines accept. It just for us, it's foreign to think that we would get someone domestic. We would attack someone over here. But we know about the Black Panther Party getting invaded by the FBI during COINTELPRO and many other organizations as well, too, that were just labeled domestic terrorism or communist. So it's not super crazy to think that it would be a situation where the government might you know, have some type of issue or do something where someone you know, a person gets killed, much like we do with foreign assassination plots. I just don't think it's a grand ordered conspiracy. I don't think it was like, we're going to plan this from the day one. And I don't think it's like that. I think if something happens and they just keep trying to cover it up and cover it up and cover it up to make it go away. And that's where the most damage is, which is what I want to attack, which is that cover up issue. Yeah, but, there yeah. was definitely a, <clears throat> there's definitely evidence of a cover up. There are people talking about a cover up. The quantity of stuff that's disappeared is just silly like it's, it wouldn't happen uh that destruction of documents that's routine or i'm like guys put it on a thumb drive for the love of god <laughs> it's not that hard yeah but you know what it is when you work in those jobs and those big bureaucracies like you have nothing to gain from honesty 
You have nothing to gain from honesty in your everyday work. You've got nothing to gain from honesty in putting those documents out. And like you start thinking of your own expedient self-interest and, you know, there's nothing in that document that's going to get you in trouble, but maybe there is and you haven't thought of it. So why not destroy it? I don't know. I, don't, I just, when I talked to Blakey from the House Select Committee on Assassinations, and I was telling him about like, because I see all these documents of him requesting for stuff, and then he had to do a meeting with them where he's like, "Can you guys like take five minutes to stop destroying documents so we can continue our investigation?" Like, look, the papers are piling up. Or I'm like, Jesus. Like, I hope we're doing digital now. Just so, you know, I don't know. I hope they're not doing it by letter still, but. I, when those, it comes to this destruction of documents, I mean, do you think when it comes to like national security, what are your thoughts on just them defining their terms on stuff? Because I know going f for documents and stuff and things that can't be released, whether they said they don't have it or it's been destroyed or they can't release it yet. I just question the term. What are you labeling as that that document still needs to be classified? I mean, even in the no, new release with 18,000 things of documents, I told Blakey four months before that happened, I said, I guarantee you so many of those are on JM Wave. Because that's all what you were asking for, and it's all what they were not giving you. And I go, that's exactly what it was. There's 60-something pages filled with like hundreds of documents on one page that are all JM Wave related, and they're just one page. And it's like, why? Just you, – you create the conspiracy if you do this. Just release it. Stop the cover-up stuff. Stop the denying of the – whatever the truth is. The truth is just let us know what it was. Like it doesn't have to be some grand conspiracy. I mean I think that – you'll find broad agreement on this. There's very little that Republicans and Democrats agree with uh, in America currently, except that the classification system is broken and crazy. You know, Biden and Trump could get together and have a drink about it. They both think it's dumb. <laughs> and they're both right to some extent. Like, if you look at what the classification systems actually are, it's madness. <laughs> it's absolute madness. But it's one of those madnesses where a lot of people make a lot of money from it, I think. There's a lot of contractors, you know, who are paid to shuffle these papers around or destroy them so it's sort of like a well-established and profitable stupidity and i can't see it changing anytime soon like if i ran the government i just put it all out in one day like people would shot in the head immediately you would just that's it that's it that's the thing that's what i said i said if i said just i became president and i saw the missing files or whatever i'd be like they killed kennedy and then bam you're done that's it game over for you someone's gonna you know pull out I of the crowd think so. i think everyone's just going to be super excited for a week and they're going to forget about it i know i hate something that. else how do we <laughs> fix that man like I, that's the question i was going to ask which is do you think it would have the impact of dag hammersholt's death the truth coming out do you think people would start because like the house of cards thing you start questioning every single thing and i i consider that with the kennedy assassination but also trying to get my generation into the kennedy assassination trying to get the public into the discussion without people rolling their fucking eyes is one of the most difficult things ever. And it seems like with politics now, if it's not happening right now, people don't care. And it's like, you need to kind of understand your history. I mean, I would recommend the church committee report for everyone to read as just a prior interesting documents that you can just understand more about your government. But also at the same time, I consider the church committee a whitewash. I'm sorry, reading that thing. And they asked William Colby if he wants to pu publish his budget. And he's like, no, we don't think we need to do that. I'm like, no, what, what are we talking about? Publish the budget. I wonder how much you guys are getting. Yeah, this is why journalism, though. This is why people go into journalism, because they're not going to tell you everything they want to, you want to know. They're not going to be honest. They're going to have their own, you know, their own considerations, which seem silly from the outside. So, you know, to put it candidly, fuck them. Go find out. <laughs> <laughs> but when it comes to Dag Hammarskjöld's death, do you think the impact would maybe have – like, obviously not probably as big as Kennedy, but I feel like a lot of people – would care about something like that especially if they heard that there was some type of government involvement or something of that sort yeah i mean it depends on the day <laughs> it could come out one day and it could take over the world and everyone could be super interested in it it could come out another day when you know whatever justin bieber fell off a building and no one would care you know damn i hope he doesn't fall off a building that was... well you know stay safe justin <laughs> knock on wood, <laughs> knock on wood. <laughs> i'm just you know just as an example uh, do you ever think about like a second church committee? I know that got talked about recently and it was kind of an idea I had for a couple of months. I'm working on a film for JFK, but it's just kind of given an education history from 63 to what we know now. Not saying who did it or the why like every other one does, but I mean I'd like to do a Dag Hammarskjöld documentary. I'd have to invite you to be a part of it because I think it's important just to teach the history a little bit. I don't I don't really need to say the who and the why about it, but I also want the public to, you know, my generation do it in a more inviting way for whether it's newer music or something like that to really get people because i mean are there any documentaries have you ever thought about a documentary on dag hammershaw there like was I one there was there's a couple of documentaries a swedish one from the 70s which is pretty great 
uh, which I actually haven't seen. I just have transcripts of it, but it has a lot of great information in it. Um, uh, and there was one that came out a few years ago, which was a little bit uh, eccentric, I think, by a Danish filmmaker called Mads Brugger. Um, and so, you know, they're worth checking out if you want to have a look. I don't I don't really think about impact with stories so much because I'm not in control of it. I'm only in control of what I find interesting and doing it the best justice that I can. And then what other people think of it, like, I hope they love it. I hope it has a big impact, of course, but it's not really up to me. You know, I just do the best that I can and and see what happens. I will say that I was writing this book, you know, when Trump got elected and when uh, America really kind of divided and started hating itself and hating other elements of it it was a period of real i'm sure you were there but like real turmoil and hatred whichever side of that thing you take uh, and i don't really take either like it was a period of turmoil and hatred and digging into history really was helpful and soothing to me at that moment because you realize whatever dumb thing is happening worse has happened before and we got over it you know it's not as terrible as you might feel on any given tuesday you know, so I think think learning about history is a wonderful thing. Do you feel like it kind of weighed on you a little bit learning about, you know, and all the stuff you included in your book, just writing about Dag Hammarskjöld? I, I feel like- No, the truth always me. reassures me. Like any anything that that really did happen, like that always makes me feel better. It's the fear and the myth that, that makes me feel anxious, that finding out what happened gives me rest. I feel like with the, even with the Kennedy assassination, I mean, I thought I was only going to be in this. I, my show is everything. It's not just Kennedy stuff. It's talk to anybody, it's academics and all this. But it's one topic that I have not been able to move on from because you start kind of diving into it and you see there's obviously so much. But it's just one of those things where it's like, there's people that spend 60 years doing, I don't want to spend 60 years doing that type of thing. And I feel like with the Dag Hammarskjöld things, why I reached out to you as well too is because I'm interested now too, where I'm just like, I want to understand it more. I'm probably going to always have an interest in looking into it more. I thought a film would be like an end all, like this is my, you know, hit the ship with a bottle type situation and let it go out to sea. But it's not that because it's kind of like, you're always going to have an interest. You're always going to try and understand more, refresh it, whether it's a good hobby. And then next thing you know, you're 75 years old and you're, you know, rambling off and everyone's putting you in the home. I feel like that now when I talk about it. Well, that's it. You realize when you when you tell stories for a living, as you do and, and I do, that they're never done. You just stop. Like there's never going to be, I always, when I started writing this book, I thought there's going to be a point where I'm like, it's finished. It's perfect. It never is. You just stop. You could write the thing. I could still be writing it now. I could be writing it when I was 100, 100 years old. You know, it's just, you. I could just rewrite it and rewrite it and add in new information and new details and new insights and new things I thought of and new conversations with people like you and it could go on forever so it's just a question of you stop you don't finish now when you worked in new york when you were going through those archives i mean were they acceptable with your story and that you were going to write a book about this as well too did they public like run that story as well too uh i didn't write a story about it i just wrote a book about it they were supportive i mean they it, the new york times tries to own its journalists so they have to sign off on you doing a book uh, and they signed off on it so I figured they would try and promote that or at least get a piece of that as well, too. I mean, it's 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 a good story. It's just like it's, this is an event as well, too. And if they have it sitting in their archives, they never thought to you know make a story about it or announcement about it at all. And then you did the work on your own and made your own book about it. I feel like they'd be 100 percent supportive in that area. That's why I asked because you were like they own their jur journalists a little bit. I was like, I know you're digging through their information. I just think, uh, yeah, stick the hand out for a little bit of, you know, piece of that. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of complicated. If you write a story for the New York, I don't know what it's like now. When I worked there, if you um, write a story for the New York Times, uh, you sign a contract saying that you'll split any book or film royalties a certain way. But if you just work there and you're doing a book about something unrelated to your area of coverage, that's that's your business. They want first refusal on, on your book with their publishing thing. But... First refusal? Yeah, they have a deal with a publishing company and they want to see your proposal before any other publisher does and they have the right to 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 take it ahead of someone else, but they chose not to exercise that right. So. Okay, so you can still publish it. Like they can't just reject it and then that means it's a no. That means no, can't no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was about to say that business needs to die if that's the case. That's terrible. Is Life Magazine still a thing? Like is that an actual... I don't know if that's still going on now. I love Life Magazine. I adore Life Magazine. It's not still a thing. I wish it was still a thing. 
I got to figure out why they bought this Pruder film. I would get a job there if it was. Like, let me real quick. Let me look in your archives. I just got to know what the hell this is about. Yeah, exactly. It's a fascinating, fascinating magazine with a fascinating, fascinating archive. Now, did this a- did this fuel your like thirst for more journalism on certain older events in history? Like, did you are you looking into anything else when it comes into any other figures? Or I I, I don't know if you might come across another Dag Hammarskjöld story, but you can. I, I would recommend Hale Boggs. I'll talk to you about Hale Boggs, man. I got to know what happened to that guy. I'll dig into it. I don't know anything about it. I, uh, I'm all, I don't know. I just, uh, I feel like the only barometer you have as a storyteller is what you personally find interesting. And so I just go around reading things and looking at things and finding things interesting. And I dig into them and sometimes they go somewhere and sometimes they don't go somewhere, but every time I have fun doing it. So <laughs> that's no, just what I do. I can appreciate the work that you did too. And I can appreciate you giving me the time to talk on my show about this subject as well too. Like I said, it's for some reason, my generation, we don't really hear about the guy's name at all uh, besides something being named after him. I mean, people really don't Google or look into who that is or don't even think twice about it, which really kind of sucks. It's a damaging thing to history because there's plenty of figures in history that might not have an extensive James Bond scenario, but they're still worth talking about and still remembering in a sense of being taught to younger generations. Yeah, I mean, I agree, but I do think everyone has their moment. Like one of the, this mystery spans from, you know, 1961 to like now. And so you realize it has peaks and troughs. There are moments where he's like really prominent. Everyone's talking about it. And there are moments where, you know, no one cares. And then there are moments where people care again. There are moments people don't care again. So everything has its season and its moment, I think. And so you might be right that this particular moment is not one which is, uh, uh, particularly introspective or given to uh, looking back through the mistakes of the past, the lessons of the future. But, you know, maybe it will come again. When those peaks happen and those drop-offs happen, is that anything similar to what date he died? Like the day or the month? Because I find that with the Kennedy assassination, whichever it's the anniversary type event. Yeah, newspapers love an anniversary because it gives them what's called a peg. Like when you have a story, you need a reason to run the story, basically. It could be that a court date is coming up or, you know, something's being released. But usually an anniversary is a good peg. It's a good moment to put out a story. So that's when you get little spikes of interest. Well, like I said, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. Is there a place where people can find your books and also any other links you'd like to provide? Yeah, just my website, ravisamaya.com. Okay. And I'm going to make sure I link that in the description. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for next episode.